By the way, a lot of my message this morning comes in the introduction. So pay attention, if you would, to the introduction. One of the most beautiful and patriotic songs we sing in celebrating the 4th of July in our country's independence is America the Beautiful. In fact, we sang one verse of that uh, already this morning. Our spacious skies and waving grain fields along with our majestic mountains towering above the fruited plains are all glorious sights and declare to us both God's glory as well as God's goodness to us as a nation. He has really, really blessed us. You know, um, and that song goes on with that prayer request, America, America, God shed His grace on thee. The second verse focuses on the pilgrims who came here paying that high cost as they sought freedom from religious oppression and tyranny. And again, a prayer request follows that verse. America, America, God mend thine every flaw. Confirm thy soul in self-control and thy liberty in law. And then the third verse speaks of the many who more than self their country loved, as well as mercy more than their lives. You see, they fought for this nation, uh, its freedom and liberty, even giving their own lives. And then that verse is followed by the patriots' dream of future glorious cities with God shedding His grace on them and the entire country. And by the way, this nation has seen God answer that prayer of that marvelous patriotic hymn. We've seen God answer that prayer. What freedoms we've enjoyed, what blessings God has poured out upon this nation. We are so privileged and so blessed to be Christians living in America. Amen? Amen. Amen. We really are when you think of the rest of the world. But like God's chosen people and nation Israel, as Bob, you prayed this morning, so much of what you prayed is right here in the message. Like God's chosen people and nation Israel, America's zenith of glory and blessing is now quickly eroding and decaying away. I just finished reading the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. If you've read them, you know some of what they're about. My, what grace and mercy and long-suffering patience God showed to Israel right up to the very last moment when He could no longer do so. How He deeply loved those people. He so deeply loved them. And it grieved Him greatly to bring upon them the destructive judgment that had to come. He sent them prophet after prophet, seeking to get them to turn their hardened hearts back to Him and His righteous ways. But the decay and the putrefaction throughout the nation was beyond remedy. That appears to be where America is as well today. I find myself more and more identifying with that prayer of the prophet Habakkuk, who was told about the impending invasion and total destruction of his nation along with his capital city, Jerusalem, and his beloved temple by the soon-coming armies of the Babylonians. He was told they were coming. Now here's what Habakkuk prayed. I heard, and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. 
Ah, but though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off and the, in the, from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, huh, yet I will exalt in my Lord I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and He has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. Dear ones, Habakkuk saw it coming. And yet, what an amazing attitude and testimony to have in light of the imminent judgment that was about to fall upon his people and his nation. And I believe that is what God wants for you and me today in this nation that finds itself in the same place and setting as Israel was just before God's hand of judgment fell upon her. But how do we know that is where we are right now in America? How do we know that? God tells us so in Romans chapter 1. Listen to verses 22 through the end of that chapter. Amazing words that God has for all peoples and all nations that fall into this venue here. Paul writes, professing to be wise. Boy, if that is not America. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own person the due penalty of their errors. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give heartily approval to those who practice them. And how does this section of Scripture begin? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Two things about that portion of Scripture. Number one, this is an accurate description of America today. And number two, three times God says He gives such people and nations 
over. When they come to this point, he literally gives up on them. His judgment is imminent, but still... But still, God's people in such a nation must exalt in the Lord. We will rejoice in the God of our salvation because the Lord God is our strength and He has made our feet like hinds feet and makes us walk upon our high places. That's the attitude and stance we will have. And by the way, like the sons of Issachar, we understand the times, do we not? With knowledge of what we should do. We've gone through that book of Revelation. We know what's coming. We know how it's all going to turn out. And we, therefore, stand upon the Word of God. Well, with this introduction, we now are coming to our morning's text, Psalm chapter 1. And I'm going to have you use your outline, if you would. We begin with the first main point there, the great blessing the Psalms are to God's children. I want you to think about that. The great blessing the Psalms are to God's children. Children, And you should already know this. I hope that you, uh, if you've been saved for any length of time, that you enjoy the Psalms, that often God leads you to read these Psalms and reflect upon them and perhaps pray them back to Him. Number one, the Psalms are Israel's hymn book of worship. You probably already know that. The Psalms are Israel's hymn book of worship. As you read through the Psalms, for example, you often find that they're used for worship in the tabernacle. Many of the psalms were set to music, as you also know, to different, using different instruments, and they were sung in worship by God's people, the Israelites. And we have psalms, for example, of ascension or ascent uh, that we read that were sung by God's people and read as they were marching from their different cities and places up to Jerusalem where they had to appear three different times during their three, three of their major feasts or celebrations. And, of course, a number of those psalms were for worshiping the promised Messiah who was to come. And we call them Messianic psalms. So this is Israel's hymn book of worship. But number two, we readily identify with the psalmist's life struggles and victories. Do we not? I do. We readily identify with the psalmist's life struggles and victories. We all, we know all too well that the nations rage against God and against His people and against the Lord. We know that, like Psalm 2 says. We see ourselves in David's ongoing struggles with King Saul when he would, in fact, he wrote a number of these Psalms when he was going through those struggles with Saul. And we understand that as we too experience those who are against us and cause us constant trouble. And along with David, we fall into sin. We're overcome by temptation. And then we have that flood of guilt that comes upon us. As he wrote Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, we say, I can identify with that. I often go there and say, Lord, uh, restore the joy of my salvation. And who has not stood like Asaph before God and struggled with why it is that God allows the wicked to prosper in their health, their family, in life in general, and they become wealthy and powerful while God, and they live long while God's people seem to be at the bottom, struggling, oppressed, stricken all day long. Who doesn't identify with Asaph? 
But then we've also been there with the psalmist when God brought him out of great depression, out of that horrible pit, that miry clay. And we've been there. We know when God has also picked us up and raised us up and put our feet upon that solid rock and established our goings and put a new song in our mouth, even praise to God. Yes, we can identify with the psalms and with Israel's hymn book here as he has blessed us similarly. But I also want you to notice that, number three, we meet the godly man in from Psalm 1 all the way through Psalm 150. I want you to see that. Just an overview. We meet the godly man from Psalm 1 all the way through to Psalm 150. Israel's worship psalter begins with Psalm 1, of course, where we meet the righteous man, and we're told he's exceedingly blessed by God. And on his journey through his life, he will be like a tree firmly planted that yields its fruit in its season. Not only that, he will stand in the day of judgment because he is known by God. That's Psalm 1. And as we journey through the Psalms, we meet folk like David and Solomon and Moses and Asaph and other godly individuals. We join them, as I said, in their struggles and trials and pains and suffering. We are there thrilled and blessed and greatly encouraged along with them as we see how God came to their rescue and answered their prayers and delivered them time and time again and abundantly blessed their lives. We see that all the way through Psalms. And then we finally come to the end of one's earthly journey. And the conclusion of all things as we arrive at that last psalm. Psalm 150, where everyone and everything is commanded to praise the Lord. And as Psalm 1 is six verses, you'll notice that Psalm 150 is also six verses that concludes the Psalter. Listen to it. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty expanse. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with harp and lyre. Praise Him with timbrel and dancing. Praise Him with stringed instruments and pipes. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And then he concludes with a crescendo, praise the Lord. What a fitting, what a fitting conclusion to one's journey through life as well as through the book of Psalms. And what a great blessing then the Psalms are to God's children. I encourage you to read them daily. In fact, if you read one Psalm a day, you can see you can get through the book of Psalms two different times during the year and even a little bit more. Some of those days you may miss, but I encourage you, I do that every day. I try to read one Psalm in my time with the Lord. We come next to the next major movement, though, in your outline, the analogy. The analogy between Psalm 1 and America today. The analogy between Psalm 1 and America today. Let me read Psalm 1 at this time. We've sung it now. Now I'll read it. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree 
firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. And this leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The analogy between Psalm 1 and America today. First, like the godly man, God has uniquely blessed America. Like the godly man that we just read about, God has uniquely blessed America. America was never a, quote, Christian nation, but it was a nation founded upon Judeo-Christian principles. One of the main reasons the pilgrims came and settled in America was because of religious oppression. They came because they longed for religious freedom. And when they came, they brought with them the Bible. They brought with them the Bible that also became the main textbook in the schools that they later established. I reiterate, this nation was founded on Judeo-Christian principles that came directly from the Bible. In his book, By the Hand of Providence, the author writes these words, The Judeo-Christian worldview remained America's consensus philosophy. And on that foundation, America's founding fathers would establish a new nation that was forged in faith. The Bible thus remained the guidebook for life, law, and government. And the local church became a school of democracy, teaching the biblical principle that life and liberty are intended as God's gift of grace to all. Americans did not believe that God existed for America, but that America should exist for God. End of quote. In the later 1600s and 1700s, Harvard and Yale and Princeton were established as Christian colleges. In fact, Jonathan Edwards would later become the president of Princeton University. A little over 150 years after the pilgrims came to America, God brought about what we call the Great Awakening in this nation. He raised up Jonathan Edwards, and you can't forget that sinners in the hands of an angry God that he preached that began that revival movement. He raised, God raised up John and Charles Wesley. We sing many of their hymns even today. He raised up that great evangelist George Whitfield, and those men came to America and they shook the continent for God. Preaching God's message of repentance and revival, causing a sea of people, multitudes, you can read about it, to turn back to God from their wicked ways. And God brought about a great revival in this country and thus greatly blessed this country just before, listen, just before the American Revolution took place. You can read about that. One has only to read the history of the founding of America and our fight for independence as well as examine all the scriptures that was carved in those rock and on our national buildings and monuments in Washington, D.C. The evidence is irrefutable that America was founded upon the Judeo-Christian principles. Listen to George Washington's comment, his own words, that he hoped Americans would never forget God's role in the American Revolution. Our first president wrote these words, and he often spoke them. 
He said the hand of providence has been so conspicuous in all of this that he must be worse than an infidel that lacks faith and more than wicked that has not gratitude enough to acknowledge his, his obligations. End of quote. But like Israel of old and all nations that have been specially blessed by God, the godly man soon began wandering away from God, turning away from God's righteous principles and ways, turning away from the Word of God, the Bible, the Scriptures. But God, still in great mercy and long-suffering, would reach out to us and sought to draw the people back to Himself and His written Word. This nation found itself fighting the civil war and loss of massive numbers of lives. And right after that, World War I, they were drawn into that war, and World War II. Once again, God raised up men He used to bring revival to this nation, and two of those men were the evangelists Billy Sunday and Billy Graham. And from the early 1900s into the mid-1900s, Bible schools and Bible colleges began springing up all across this nation and great numbers of our young people flooded into them, committing their lives to serve God and go wherever He might lead them. And then God raised up great works such as InterVarsity, Youth for Christ, Campus Crusade for Christ, the Navigators, along with many other groups and organizations to evangelize and disciple high school and college and university students and to do mission work throughout the United States as well as throughout the world. God did that. We know about that history. But that brings us to point number two. The godly man now pales as the wicked light chaff blow across this nation. The godly man now pales as the wicked light chaff blow across this nation. Despite all God's mercy and compassion and long-suffering that He has shown to this nation, the masses of people so richly blessed by God deliberately chose to turn away from Him. Satan would use the evil doctrine of evolution, making sure it was taught as scientific fact in our schools. He would indoctrinate the nation with his lie. He would join our schools across the land and spew his hatred of God and the Bible in them and drive God and the Bible out of those schools. He would use the affluence along with the leisure and the pleasure that so many enjoyed in this blessed country. And like he did among the Israelites, he would use God's blessing to turn his people away from God. Satan would also join and pollute the churches throughout the land, turning them away from the Bible and its thus saith the Lord, truth. He would so infiltrate all of society that only God could separate the wheat from the tares. From his years of sowing his seed and working his master plan, Satan finally would have his tower of Babel built and well fortified, and he would call it America. The government would be under his control, run by his key people. The judicial system would be his, no longer promoting and protecting the righteous governed by sound principles, but literally destroying those solid principles and turning against the godly throughout the nation as we now see it happening. 
He would have control of the educational systems, using them to teach and spawn his agenda. The media would be under his control, as well as a massive influential entertainment world. That's where we find ourselves in this country today. And today we find our nation, the United States, America, literally overrun with the wicked who God describes are like chaff which the wind drives away, which we read about in Romans chapter 1 at the beginning of this message. Psalm 11.3 asks the probing question, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, our God has something to say. And that brings us to our next main point in our outline. God's declaration concerning the godly man and the wicked man. God's declaration concerning the godly man and the wicked man. First, the godly man described. What he does not do. We sang about it. We read about it. By the way, it should be easy to observe that both the Psalms and the book of Proverbs begin the first chapters in each one describing two different paths and each person chooses which path he or she will walk on in their life's journey. And in both Psalm 1 and Proverb 1, God weighs in both during one's journey on that path he chose to walk on as well as at the end of that journey. You saw that in Psalm 1, and you can see that in Proverb 1. We call that wisdom literature, by the way. Also in both, God's written word or revelation to mankind is seen to be absolutely essential for one's success. First, we see that the godly man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The wicked's counsel will put him on the wrong path. His is a Christian worldview, just like it was the early founding fathers of this nation. The wicked's counsel will put him on that wrong path, and he wants to be guided by the Bible, the Christian's right Christian worldview, because his guidance is from God's written word. Second, we see that the godly man does not stand in the path of sinners. Jesus talked, by the way, about two different paths. The one that leads to life and the broad one that leads to destruction, that is not the path that the godly man is on. He chooses that narrow path that leads to life. And third, the godly man does not sit in the seat of the scoffers, that is, scorners. Rather, he stands firm from God's, for, for God's word and his righteous standards and ways. When I think about scorning, just read the paper. Look at the news, how they scorn and mock those that stand for truth and the biblical principles of the Word of God. My, how they scorn and mock you and me. But then we are told what he does do in verse 2. He delights in the law of the Lord. I like that word law. Law. God has something to say about how we are to live, what we're to do and not do. It's found in the law. And much of that law, by the way, is repeated in the New Testament. Not just in the old. 
but he delights in the law of the Lord. Just as our founding fathers brought the Bible with them and pursued God's commands, so the godly man does. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He loves God's Word. He loves to meet the God of the Bible on the pages of the Bible. He loves to walk through life with Him. And what happens as a result of that? God pronounces His blessing on him. God blesses him in life, on his journey. Look what it says there in verses uh, verse 3. And he will be like a tree. Well, go back to verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the council. How blessed. That's a superlative in the Hebrew. How supremely blessed he is, God says. And then he goes on in verse 3. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of waters, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. And so God says this is what he, he pronounces a blessing on him in his life, but then God blesses him after his life. Go down to verse 6, the last verse. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. But now let's look number two, the wicked man described. The wicked man described. What he does do. The psalmist describes for us a definite progression downward in the degradation of mankind who do not know God or pursue God. First, he is ungodly. That is, he's described as being wicked. And then he's labeled a sinner. That's his description. He lives in sin. His life is one of sin. He is a sinner. He missed the mark completely. That's what it means to be a sinner. And finally, he's a scoffer. His steps of progression in rebelling against God are first in his walk, then in his stance, and finally in his sitting or taking up a definite relationship with the wicked. This progression can be seen in his first accepting their deliberation, and then taking on their manner, and finally becoming one of them, joining their cause. Have we not seen this downward progression snowballing in America? We've always had the ungodly or unsaved living in this country, but these masses of ungodly have progressed further and deeper on their path of sin. And they now have taken the seat as scoffers as they speak out and are moved to action against the righteous throughout the land. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who do the same, who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's where America finds itself today. And what is he like? What is this wicked like? Well, in verse 4, God describes them as chaff, which the wind drives away. What a contrast. A tree firmly rooted by the rivers of water that brings forth its season, and whatever it does is prosperous, and then from a solid, firm tree to just chaff. In Psalm 83, 13 and following, Asaph cries out to the Lord, O my God, make them like the whirling dust. 
like chaff before the wind, like fire that burns the forest and like a flame that sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with your tempests and terrify them with your storm. Fill their faces with dishonor that they may seek your name. David writes in Psalm 35 verses 5 and 6, Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them on. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. And then we're told, and then we're told what his final doom will be. Look at verse 5. God declares, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. After they have lived out their physical life that God describes as being just a breath, just a vapor that's gone, God will cast them out of His sight into eternal damnation. You know that. I know that. That's what the Scripture declares. What an insult to God who said, Your only hope is if I provide it. I must provide it in my Son, and it will cost me everything. It will cost Him everything to provide that hope. And so He sends His Son. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, comes. He came for the purpose, the express purpose of going to that cross. And God said, now I'm going to take all your sin, all of your life's sins, and I will place that upon my son, my only son, my beloved son. I'm going to place your sins completely on him. But there's a judgment you must pay. No, rather, I will have him pay your judgment. And so God pours His fiery wrath out upon His Son. He deserts His Son, if you please. He leaves Him for a moment and He cries out, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? God does that for every single person born in this earth. Out of great love and provision, He does that. What do you think He does when we snub our nose and say, I don't care about His provision. I will go without it. I don't need it. What an insult to holy God who paid such a great price that you and I could go free. Now you understand why He will drive them from His presence and cast them into hell. Either His Son pays the penalty in full for you or you pay it yourself. And it can never be paid off by you. But praise God, it was completely paid off by His Son. God describes this chaff. This mass of people in Psalm 49 to be like beasts being fattened on the hills as they live their lives only to be slaughtered. What a descriptive picture. Twice the psalmist says in Psalm 49, man in his pomp yet without understanding is like the beasts that perish or literally animals that are destroyed, animals that are raised for the slaughter. In Psalm 73, Asaph graphically describes the ungodly, the sinner, the scoffer's present condition and his final future when he writes these words, Then I perceive their end. Surely you set them in slippery places, you cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment! They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. That's every person who's unsaved. Every person who has turned down the gift of salvation, He provides in His Son. Thirdly, in your outline, Psalm 11, 
who God hates and who God loves. Listen to Psalm 11. It's brief. Who God hates, who God loves. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? In other words, great troubles were throughout the land. The mockers were saying, you know, flee. Flee as a bird to the mountain. He said, no, and the Lord I'll take refuge, David said. For behold, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Ah, but the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone, and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves the righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. I don't know who our next president will be, if we'll have a next president. Whoever he or she might be, they may be able to strengthen our military and make us once again a strong military nation. They may even be able to help the economic hole that we're in with trillions of dollars in debt. They may be able to deliver that out, deliver us out of that. But dear ones, they will not, they will not be able to stop the great flood of moral decay. Josiah could not stop it. Back in his Hezekiah could not stop it. That dam has burst wide open. Surely you know that. I'm not saying God cannot bring revival. I doubt at this stage of the game He will. What is the worst judgment God could bring upon America? Think about that for a moment. What is the worst judgment God could bring upon America? Is it a drought that moves across the United States like we're experiencing here on the West Coast? Obviously, there would be terrible consequences if that continues on. Food prices are going to rise, and eventually there will not be food on the shelves. You understand that. And God can do that. Is it going to be a major earthquake or earthquakes that hit and devastate our country? Would the worst judgment be God allowing a major terrorist attack? Perhaps a dirty bomb going off in one or more of our major cities? It's amazing how they raise the alert over the 4th of July because they, all the chatter going on about ISIS wanting to attack Americans, the lone wolves and so forth. I ask the question again, what would be the worst judgment God could bring upon America? 
Although any of those I have suggested would be terrible beyond words, and they would be, I do not think any or even all of them combined together would be the worst judgment that God could bring upon this country. I believe, I believe the absolutely worst judgment God could ever bring upon America is the removal of His church from off the earth. All righteousness gone. Instantly. All light and salt gone. And finally, Satan will have his hour completely able to do whatever he desires and has planned. And we know for seven years that's going to happen. Dear ones, I stand here to say to you, we will not save America. We will not save America. It's too far gone. The dam has burst wide open. Surely this last Supreme Court decision or those decisions must have helped us to see that. The chaff has completely overtaken the nation. The ungodly, the sinners, the scoffers are now firmly in control. From those wonderful beginnings of our nation, we are now looking at the end. But what is our role as the ungodly? We are, I believe right now, God's special forces. We're His special force. We can't save the nation, but we have been sent in to deliver those few God will bring to saving faith. And that's what we're to be about and will be about it until the day He calls us home either by death or He takes us all out of here. And I close with this challenge for each one of us. Purpose. Purpose no matter what comes next. To finish well. Let Paul's final words just before he was taken out of this world, executed by the world system, ring in our minds and our hearts. Second Timothy 4 verse 7, 8, you know it well. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Dear ones, we really are living in most interesting times. I think we're living right on the edge. Lift up your eyes. Your redemption draws nigh. Heavenly Father, we love this nation. We grieve in our hearts about the turn it's taken. Lord, we look back when the pilgrims came, when the colonists hung on to your word and loved your word. In the Declaration of Independence, all those founding fathers, they loved you. That is, they knew your word. They knew that you, God, would be the one that would have to give them the independence of victory. There was faith. The whole nation, in a sense, turned to you. And now we're at the other end when the whole nation, in a sense, has turned away from you. Father, I don't think we're going to save the nation. I don't think that's your plan. But oh, that we would be involved 
in saving and delivering those few that you will reach out and salvage. I pray, Father, that we'll pray for this nation, that we'll thank you for your mercy and compassion. I pray, Father, that we would be like Habakkuk of all old. As we see the judgment coming, yet, yet we will exult in our Lord. We will rejoice in our God of salvation. For, Lord God, you are our strength, and you've made our feet like hinds feet, and you make us walk on high places. We will be the godly in amongst all the swirling chaff. Thank you, God, that the outcome will be you accomplishing your purpose in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.